Today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 19 through 24. Um, If you could all please turn there with me. That's Romans 9, 19 through 24. 9, 19 through 24. And he'll open us up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that our minds are insufficient to grasp these truths in such a way that changes our hearts. But you, O Lord, bear witness through the Holy Spirit and you transform our hearts through your word. Allow this study to achieve that today, Lord, in all of our hearts. Please bless us with open minds and wisdom and love for you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Then you need to get a new book. (coughs) Um, Whenever we come to a passage in the Bible, it's always helpful for us to ask these questions of it. Why is this passage here? Why is it in the Bible? We believe that the Bible isn't just a collection of stories. It's not just a narrative, but it is the divinely inspired word of God, the creator of our universe. And so with that, we believe that every part was intentional communication from God to his people to achieve his goals in the life of believers. As it's said in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we know that whenever we're coming to a passage in scripture, that it's not just an accounting of things, but something that was purposed to have an effect on our lives and to teach us. And so when we come to a passage, we should ask ourselves, why is it here? Because if we fail to treat it as a communication from God, we'll miss the main reason why we're studying it. So, in Romans 9, God is, is working through Paul to give believers in Rome here and throughout the whole world confidence that the assur- that they can be sure of what he promises because he is faithful specifically this is coming after all of the promises and assurances that were provided in Romans 8 Paul wants to make sure that the believers in Rome are sure and confident that the one who has promised these things is faithful to see them to their end And so, to establish that confidence, Paul is working through some doubts that might be raised about God's actions that might lead people to question his faithfulness. It's very similar to if you're looking to enter into a close relationship with someone. You might have some trust for them, but you don't trust them completely yet. And the way that that trust is developed is through 
um, spending time with them in such a way that your doubts about their character are answered and you grow to know them better and have a better confidence about who they are. In the same way, we grow our faith and our trust in God through communication with him, through time with him, and through facing our doubts about his character. So we can understand that this chapter in general is a tool that Paul, that God through Paul is using to help us wrestle with our doubts until we come to a greater confidence that whatever God promises, he is faithful and just to ordain it. The primary doubt that this chapter is facing is the problem of Israel and the fact that only a portion of Israel believes. Um, the common understanding of the promises that Israel had was that all of Israel would enter into the kingdom of God, that all of Israel would be saved. And so if you come to the letter of Romans with this common understanding of the time and you hear over and over again how it is only those who trust in Christ who will enter into the kingdom. It is only those who uh, put their faith in God who will receive the promise. You might begin to doubt the trustworthiness of the promises of this God. But Paul goes on to show how the reason for this doubt is not any inconsistency on God's part but a failure to understand how God has communicated and how God has decided to work and so Paul explains that and proves how through all of the Old Testament God has planned to work through election sovereignly choosing a few and allowing others to face the consequences for their action but bringing up the problem of election leads to other doubts and objections about, about it. And so he proceeds to spend this next section handling objections about the justice of election. Common questions people might have about <clears throat> this supposed way that God works. And so in the section that uh, Seth taught on last week they, Paul handles the first aspect of the doubts about the justice of election because people might question how is it fair that God would elect some Gentiles while there are Jews who are the people of God who are going to hell and Paul answers that it's it's fair because when God picks people in election, it is wholly um, his decision and not at all based on anything that they say or have done or anything about them. And so it's not as if people are getting elected because they are some... that. It's not as if Gentiles are being elected to the kingdom of God because they are in some ways better than 
the uh, Jews, but rather it is wholly based on God's decision. But the doubts about the justice of God's election do not end there, but they continue on into the section that we're studying today in Romans 19. We see at the beginning of verse 19 that he says, you will say to me then, that is a phrase that shows us immediately that the section that Paul's going to be talking about is a response to something that he just previously said. Brother, you meant Romans 9.19, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, what do you say? Just want to make sure everybody's on the same board. Yeah, so we see immediately when we start to look at this passage that it it fits into the context of this larger argument. And so the objection that Paul raises in Romans 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will, is a response to the end of his argument in Romans um, 9:14-18, where he says in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so, in response to that concluding statement, Paul is anticipating the objection that some might raise. That, how, how can God find fault in people if his decision to elect is solely based on his will and on nothing that they do? On the surface, it seems like it, it might be a reasonable question to raise about election. That if God is having mercy on people and hardening others based solely on his sovereign will and not on any decisions or actions they make, how is it that he can find fault with them? How can he um, punish them for something that they were powerless to do? people who you're close to, who you're friends with, the vast majority of those people are people who you have reason to be close with or to be kind to or to um, place in your presence. Very few times in life do we gather people around us for no reason but to choose to love them. Um, The closest example that we come to is usually adoption where someone picks a child for for usually very little reason other than to, to give that child a home and love. And it usually has very little to depend on who that child is and what that child has to offer you. But in the general, when we choose to be kind to people, it's 
because they've been kind to us or they have some traits that we find um, appealing or um, worthy of reward. When God said, my ways are not your ways, Mm -hmm. and your thoughts are not my thoughts, vice versa, um, that should indicate to us that we need to get to know him far better so that we can understand as much as possible about his ways Mm -hmm. and that not to look like to a human telescope and try to discern what should be because we are not we are not the potter he is the potter yeah and and that's one of the reasons why this passage is here is because God's ways are not all our ways and because his thoughts are not our, our thoughts because he is so foreign to how we operate it makes sense that looking at that we might be confused about it from time to time and so we'd need to spend time studying and reflecting to mm. to answer that confusion um, and the the bible is is proof that god has placed in placed great emphasis and importance on us understanding who he is and why he does what he does Um, ultimately this objection here is not though though it may seem coming out of a, a reasonable logical rationale it actually comes from a pride and a failure to understand who God is and who we are ultimately what this objection is doing is claiming that it is unjust for God to decide what happens to us without our say and even that might seem seem logical to some of us because we're used to a world where the people we interact with only have if they have any rights over us it's only because we've chosen to give that right to them my boss only has a right to tell me what to do because I've agreed to enter into that um, relationship with them. If someone signed me up to help out with something and without any questioning on my part, any discussion with me, no one would have any right to be upset with me for not doing it because I have the right to say what happens in my life but as we'll see in this passage God has the right over us and the relationships that we're used to um, on a day to day basis when no one has authority over us that we don't give them is not the relationship we have with God and so this objection that it is unjust for God to decide what happens to us without our say will be proven to be um, ineffective and unfitting and when you realize that this is the heart behind the objection it starts to become clear why Paul will answer the way that he does Um, he as we'll see he proved 
he goes on to answer by showing us who God is and who we are instead of some deeper explanation of the reason behind God's choices as a way to satisfy our doubts he instead chooses to remind us of who God is and we start to see that in verse 20 Paul says but who are you O man to answer back to God will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this Paul is reminding the objector and us here to remember who we are and who God is and this is intended to be a a sharp rebuke where the person raises the objection and Paul in response says but who are you O man reminding them sit back in your seat and remember who you're talking about but this sharp rebuke isn't an attempt to dismiss the objection it isn't an attempt to say that um, God is God so you aren't allowed to um, disagree with anything and so you just have to shut up does anyone else keep it first of all in these two questions in, in uh, verse 19 it's almost giving Paul back to God mm-hmm. in other words if, if, if you do um, choose for me then how can you blame me when I rebel against you mm-hmm. almost sending Paul back to God saying I'm not at fault for my actions you are yeah and that's what what the objection is is saying is that it is unjust for God to decide what happens to me without my say in it and so it's it's declaring that the fault is with God in election that when that if God elects apart from my actions that it is unjust for him to do that because I have no say in the outcome one of the young ladies in youth group when I was teaching recently told me that two of her male co-workers basically told her that God set her up for failure because he created her knowing that she was going to sin and therefore God deliberately set her up to fail and I said wow I hope you threw that pot of grease at him I, don't <laughs> I, said, I said you know you just have to I said why what about all the wonderful things that happen to us in life you know, in spite of who we are and what we do you know what I mean and uh, but there is a sense of people it's almost like it's saying to God who are you to judge and, and it's basically this failure to understand who God is and who we are it's viewing God like he's like a president where he's someone who is similar to us but has been placed in a position of authority not realizing that he is this this being that is far greater and far superior than us um, whose wisdom and understanding are logically beyond ours Um, and it becomes arrogant to talk to him in in such a way as if he has to prove himself to you and as if he has to justify the reasons for his decisions for them to be just yeah. 
Yeah, I mean the the rhetorical question that God asks, you know, like where were you when I made the snowflake? It, the the implied answer to that is I wasn't there, you know. I wasn't there when you laid the foundation of the earth and and the implication of that is you aren't anything like what I am in that sense. As Paul has said, um, please remove this thorn in my flesh. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. (laughs) Therefore, I think that what we need to do is have enough faith and trust in God to understand that he has a purpose for all the things, the trials that we do go through. And that we have to not only be accepting of it, but we have to continue to trust him for all things work for the good of those who love Jesus. Yeah, definitely. And so this sharp rebuke here isn't meant to dismiss the objection out of hand and just to move on to some other topic. But rather, it's because you can't begin to answer this objection if you're not understanding who you are and who God is. Mm. And so Paul has to sharply rebuke the person who makes this objection so they're at the right starting point to actually rightly think about God's election. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if, if we bring our pride to the table will never be ready to understand God's election and the reasonings and purposes behind it. And so Paul reminds the objector and us to remember who we are and who God is. Very pointedly, the emphasis is on you, O man, in comparison to God it's set up in very sharp relief but then he will continue after using the rebuke to remind us to pay attention to the relationship between us and God to use an analogy to help show us what that relationship is and what it means for us and so as we start to look further um, at the end of verse 20 he says um Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Mm. And, and so the start of this analogy, comparing our relationship with God to the molded's relationship with its molder, um, is to show that this relationship that he's reminding us of is the relationship between creature and creator. Mm that God is the one who has made us. And so in the same way that the one who molds something is not responsible to answer back to the thing he's making what his purposes and intentions are and why his actions were just and right, we don't have the right to look back at God and question him about his purposes. You know, and it, it's it's interesting uh, if you you realize that what a fundamental how this is the question the same question mm-hmm. that was in the garden 
<coughs> when Satan said, did God really say? Mm. <coughs> and, you, and you look at it and you say, you know, you know, this is exactly what we're doing. We're questioning God again. You know, and this is, so this is so, this is the basis where we, we have our faith is because yeah. we know, we, you, know, you know, Adam couldn't do it. And, 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 and he was, you know, and, and we're here. And if it wasn't for, for God choosing us and giving us the, the grace yeah. to, to believe, we, we wouldn't have a chance. Amen. And if you follow that back, this objection is raised out of a failure to realize who God is and to think that we are somehow on equal level with God where we can question him and his right to decide things about our life. And so that pride leads to an objection that undermines an understanding of election which then undermines the faithfulness of God. Mm. And so you can see how the, the pride insidiously works back and works back until we start questioning God in all things. And so we have to answer the pride all the way down to this deep level mm-hmm. to, to have confidence in God at this higher level. Mm. It's good to remember too that he's most likely alluding to Jeremiah's parable. Mm-hmm. So people that think election is like a New Testament emphasis is wrong because the Old Testament, he's saying the same thing, I can squash this, yeah. what I'm making, God yep. said I can squash it down and make it whatever I want. So yeah, definitely. And what there's a continuity there, Paul's showing. There's um, a few passages that, that this pretty clearly parallels back to in the Old Testament. Um, and it might seem, as you're reading through Romans 9, like the earlier sections he was quoting from the Old Testament and in this section he's moved on to something else but it's clear that he's he's really endeavoring to build his argument from the Old Testament understanding and passages so that he can prove without a doubt that this is the way that God has always worked and has always chosen to operate And so he he continues the analogy and he expands upon it in verse 21 where he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? And as I I was saying, this this very strongly parallels to um, Isaiah 29 verses 15 and 16 where the prophet Isaiah is prophesying to the the wicked people in Israel the word of the Lord and says uh, you who hid deep from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark who say who sees us who knows us you turn things upside down shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker he did not make me or the thing formed, say of he who formed it, he has no understanding. And so you see in this passage that the failure to understand the relationship between creature and creator is the source of much sinfulness and wickedness where that failure to understand the relationship leads people to question and disregard God's authority and um, his place in their life. Mm 
you think that it's fair to say that the emphasis in this text is not that God gets to create humankind to do whatever he wants. He doesn't, the emphasis is that God can create humans to destroy them if he wants. The emphasis here is God can deal with fallen humanity in a way that yeah. is fitting for whatever purpose he does. Because I think some people extrapolate from this mm-hmm. into an area where we shouldn't. Where we say, for example, God creates people basically for the sole purpose of sending them to hell. Where what we're really dealing with here and emphasizing is God's freedom to do what he wants with fallen humanity. Whether to harden some and leave them in their state mm-hmm. or, or to extend mercy to them. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the important things to reveal, realize about this passage is um, there's the objection raised in verse 19 and then the rest of the passage mm-hmm. is four rhetorical questions. And so if you treat these rhetorical questions like they're some sort of doctrinal statement, mm-hmm. you'll misinterpret and misalign it. Um, but realizing that he's bringing up these analogies to highlight a point Mm-hmm. Um, that point isn't that God is is taking humanity before it's it's created before it's fallen mm-hmm. and saying, okay, I'm going to create some of them for destruction and I'm going to create some of them for glory. Um, this analogy is meant to highlight that God has the right to do with fallen humanity as He chooses. That same lump in the analogy um, has not the Potter the right over the clay to make out of the same lump Mm -hmm. one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable Mm -hmm. that same lump doesn't represent unfallen humanity but rather represents fallen humanity Mm -hmm. saying that out of that fallen humanity he has the right to make um, vessels for two different purposes Um, that word Arminian is sort of like a double predestination argument saying, oh, well, God chose these people to go to heaven, and God, you know, designed these people to go to hell, and it's, mm. it's total misinterpreting mis- uh, what's really going on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> 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 the last thing they say, if you, uh, when I taught these theology classes at another church I was going to, I had people, like, pretty close, like, almost up in my face, being like, you know, your God is this God who's... <laughs> You know, sending these people to hell, and like, you know, it's, 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 we've had some crazy discussions, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yes, it, 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 people don't understand like when it's not double predestination that God, that God, the people that God has chosen, the elect, mm-hmm. God intervenes on their behalf into their life, mm-hmm. and the people that you know, quote unquote, that the Armenians were ever quote that God, you know, created these people to go to hell. He didn't create them to go to hell, but God doesn't intervene in their life. Mm-hmm. He leaves them to their own devices. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that, they themselves are the ones that send themselves yeah. to hell, not God. God doesn't intervene in their life and, and, and pour grace into their life. So he just leaves them to their own devices. Amen. Yeah. And, and you see that if you follow the context of this passage... Um, as I pointed out in the start, this connects back to verse 18, which is what Seth covered last week. Um, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Mercy there represents the salvation that God provides, and it's one, something that's undeserved, and it's two, something that changes the person's heart. Um, but the hardening is, is qualitatively different than the mercy because hardening speaks of um, just allowing the heart to remain stubborn and mm-hmm. removing grace that 
that would allow the heart to to uh, not be so depraved and so the this understanding that Paul is trying to um, push forward is couched in this understanding that um, God's um, mercy is operating in a qualitatively different way than his hardening and his election of some is um, specific and different um, than the way people end up um, in hell are you going to touch on double predestination at all um, there's, there's some validity to it and maybe you can talk a little bit about in what ways there is some validity to it um, overall I everything is under God's ordination and so it's not like people going to hell is is some accident or surprise in God's plan um, or just some where it's not as if God only has a plan for part of humanity and then that causes by um, proxy some people to go to hell but rather God has ordained all things from from before time and so um, in in a general sense the the fates of all people fall under God's um, sovereign plan um, but then when you um, get into it you can see how uh, God's plan in regards to his elect is um, has a different quality and sense yeah I'd like to have a question and I'd like to leave it open to anyone who feels comfortable in answering it including yourself mm-hmm. uh, because God chose I guess it's Ephesians 1-4 uh, God chose us before the foundation of the world in other words, we became his elect before we were even formed before the world was formed um, so he actually picked or chose some that he was going to keep, I guess you would say, or or uh, give grace to, and then some he was going to leave them in their state. Um, that I, I can understand the after effect since we have sinned, we deserve to go to hell. Romans three twenty three, but if it was established before we have even sinned who was going to be his elect and who was not going to be his elect um, that's, that's one point that I struggle with a wee bit yeah. is there anyone so what, what's the question? so <laughs> the question is why? why? Um, how, how can he elect before the foundation of the world before we're even born uh, who he'll uh, give grace to and who he will not um, that that one really grabs me that's the answer to that Good. that's why God made worship rehearsal Brother <laughs> 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 Todd 
I got. I got to admit that's a great response. Um, uh, of course, what Wally's question says is that there's an awful lot of mystery in between the, yeah. the, 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 the sentences and the pages of scripture. Um, my response has always been in relationship to man owns his sin. There is not a man who is in hell saying, I wish I could have gone to heaven, but God prevented me from going there. And there's not a man in heaven who's saying that I got there on my own efforts, but it was by the grace of God. Um, We have to look at, I think, as Paul's teaching here, is the lump of all of humanity. (coughs) And by the sovereign grace of God, he chooses some to shed his grace upon and leave the rest. It's, it, we should we should say, in, as John MacArthur likes to say, and I, I use this in evangelism, is that we should be asking the question not why God did not save all, but why did He save any? Part of the emphasis of the the whole greater section of Romans nine is that this election, the the fact that some are elect and others aren't, has nothing to do with the characteristics of either party. Um, and I think that's really key that the the difference that's made is wholly captured in God's will and his sovereign right to choose. And, and we'll get, especially as we go further on in the passage, we'll get a sense of how God in creation has purposed election to proclaim his glory and his character. Um, and that's, we, we can clearly see in scripture that when God chooses to elect, it is to demonstrate his character. Um, but the reason why that election chooses some and not others is um, a mystery that's left up to the counsel of God's own will. One of the best attempts that I thought um, we started to answer this is done by um, John Piper. Mm-hmm. John Piper says, Mankind is, is like a pirate who saves someone's life. They're still a pirate. In other words, what he's getting at is that you don't actually have to actively be committing a sin to be a sinner. You yeah. made that way. The the context of of Romans. Well, I'm, I'm talking about what Wally has has said in that you know Jacob, I love Esau, I have hated even before either one of them have done right or wrong. Mm-hmm. That's when he made the choice of that because we are all 
sinners. Just like um, what Todd had said, is that none of us deserve anything other than um, the penalty of sin. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. So continuing on here, we also there's also that parallel in um, Jeremiah. 18 verses 1 through 6 um, where God calls to to Jeremiah arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words so I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do then the word of the Lord came to me O house of Israel Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so the rhetorical question in verse 21 and in Jeremiah is, doesn't God have the right to do with his creation what he wills? Um, And so... The, the obvious answer to that rhetorical question is is yes. The, the creator has the rights over his creation. Just as you wouldn't um, object to the potter remaking the clay without its permission, you shouldn't object to God purposing um, in his sovereign will um, what, what he will with people, choosing to harden some and have mercy on others. And then this analogy um, is brought back to us and to God more directly. Where in verses 22 and 23 he says, What if God, desiring to make known, uh, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Um, This is yet another rhetorical question and the point of it is to show God's how God's election declares his character and how it presents who he is before the world and before his elect specifically. Um, there might be a little bit more of an insight in verse uh, in Romans 8.29 where it says, For those, those he foreknew, we talked about this previously, using the term foreknew as loved before yeah. time. So for some reason, and I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, why God loves those whom he loves, then he predestines them. Because he loves them, we don't know what his his qualifications are for loving us. Yeah. But uh, that could, and then he said, then he can do whatever he wants with whom he loves. And whom he may... Is it possible that in the evangelical church of today that there still is this offense of the character of God even within the Christian when 
some believe in the penal substitutionary work of Christ and then those who believe in a universal atoning death and that that becomes the basis of the disagreement the basis of the different doctrinal positions I I think the the difference between those those two perspectives actually comes from this objection um, because when when people aren't comfortable with the doctrine of election they aren't comfortable with with God's specific atonement um, because this idea that that God has a a love that is specifically targeted to to certain people and not others is hard for for us as fallen humanity to accept um, and it's hard for us to accept any view of the world that states that there are decisions made about our future and our life which we have no say in and no effect on and yet they have no problem accepting that a perfect God would sacrifice his own son to save them Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense at all. So it, it's such a yeah. It's it's easy for fallen humanity to um, not be when they fail to realize who God is and who they are to not be surprised that they are chosen by God Um, but when you realize who you are and who God is then it becomes immensely surprising that God chooses to elect any of us and show grace to any of us Yeah, because they they have a hard time ascribing um, absolute reality to anything, and so they constantly look for the reason behind the reason, um, and they are there. It's this idea of like, well, where does God get his reasons? And it's hard for them to imagine a being who is in himself the reason for his actions and the fullness of goodness um, ultimately the answer is 
it is good because God says it's good and what he says is good you know um, and that goodness finds its culmination in his actions and his decisions and his will and his character um, and you can't really slice it and dice it and say that God's character is in response to what is good or what is good is in response to God's character but rather they are one and the same they're kind of borrowed from our world view too because you know like they think they're just uh, cosmic accidents you know they're, you know how do they how do they all of a sudden think that there's some kind of standard yeah. when they have you know they, they just think they're here by chance mm-hmm. no no one can live without a concept of absolute truth um, it's it's impossible to truly live in the postmodern idea that nothing is definitive um, because we have to make but no, no one lives their life day to day thinking that you can't prove anything yeah. well, you know, not honest, you know, honest, yeah. honest about it mm-hmm. they, a lot of people do because they're, they're dishonest yeah. So the answer to this rhetorical question in verses 22 and 23, um, you can't say that it's unfair for God to choose what purpose he has for us in response to this rhetorical question, because Paul has already worked through this, that, that the potter has right over clay and that God as the creator has has the right to decide um, who he'll save. Um, and you also you can't object that that election is anything but consistent with the character of God and his purposes um, in this rhetorical question you clearly see that God is um, displaying his wrath he's making known his power he's demonstrating his patience um, his justice and he's making known the riches of his glory as well as um, showing that he has uh, sovereignly orchestrated things and has the power to decide what he wills and what will happen Um, but (coughs) while this is comforting because it teaches us how God's election is, is true and right and good and how thereby we can be confident (coughs) in our in our faith and confident in his faithfulness um, the the deeply beautiful thing here is that God has the entire right over our future and our purpose over who he saves um, and nothing we do could sway his decision yet he still decides to show mercy to us yet he still decides to have grace Um, that there is nothing in us or about us that demands a certain treatment from God other than punishment and yet he still chooses to be gracious to us and we see that captured in verse 24 where Paul says um, in response to talking about the riches of glory for vessels of mercy he says even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles Paul almost uh, adds into this thought this this amazed sense at the fact that 
God has a, a plan that decides to be merciful to people despite no reason um, in them to be that way and that not only does he decide to be merciful um, and show riches of glory when he has um, no extrinsic reason to do that he does that to us he shows that mercy to us and that grace to us which is an amazing thing and so from this passage we should remember we should remember who we are and who God is and be humbled um, and as we endeavor to understand things like election um, we should always keep in sharp relief the relationship of creature and creator we should be confident that he is faithful and true and that there is no objection against his actions that can truly stand uh-huh. and we should rejoice without arrogance knowing that the only thing that gathers us here together in his name is not anything but us but his sovereign will and grace and love and that there is nothing different about any of us that makes us elect we should be grateful that God not only that God saves but he saves us he saves all of you and he saves me any closing questions or thoughts just so that people, I think people sometimes zoom in on this path, this, this portion that you uh, have responsibility for, and, 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 re- and neglect the evangelistic side, thinking that this squashes evangelism. But right after this section, Paul begins in the first verse of the tenth chapter, mm-hmm. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, mm-hmm. as if they might be saved. Mm-hmm. So, whatever your view is <coughs> of election, it should never interfere with your zeal for evangelism. Yeah. And Paul is an excellent example of that. And, and it's very important that you you don't look at the sharp rebuke in verse 20 as a dismissal of the person's question, but rather framing the person into a mindset so that they can begin to understand the answer to this objection. Um, that this this um, rebuke of but who are you O oh man to answer back to God isn't saying like you should stop raising any objections or question or having any doubts and trying to work through them but rather it's saying if you are to find the answer to this objection you have to remember who God is and who you are first um, so we shouldn't look at this as something that squashes evangelism or ends any conversation but rather a instruction that um, a proper mindset of who God and who God is and who we are is fundamental to an understanding of how God works in all of scripture any other thoughts isn't that like that's what we rely on. If it wasn't for God, that he, you know, if, if God wasn't there and He didn't choose and He didn't do His work, we, you know, we could talk to forever and it wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't we wouldn't convince anybody it's the work of God. And so, as we evangelize, that's that's our hope, that's our assurance is that, you know, that we can that we're we're just the uh, tool that yeah, that God will use. And it's important to understand that this isn't the start of the book of Romans. 
so we shouldn't treat it like it's um, an idea by itself. This, is, this comes after a long conversation about the state of humanity and God's response to that and the consequences of it. And so all of this is couched in discussion of faith being the way that God um, provides salvation and righteousness for people. And so you can, you can never lift this doctrine of election up out of here and then use it to take away the significance of faith in our choice. Um, this is firmly couched in a, a long, thorough discussion about um, the role of faith in salvation um, and should never be taken apart from that. Any other thoughts or comments? Brother Todd, would you close us in prayer? Father, I marvel that when Isaiah spoke concerning Christ, he's on the cross and he sees his chosen seed, the progeny that comes from his very sacrifice. And in this, O oh Lord, we rejoice the fact that Jesus Christ himself died and paid the penalty for our sin. And yet he was the world's greatest evangelist and proclaimed this gospel of peace. And therefore, O oh Lord, we worship you as a God who we can't fully figure out because, O oh Lord, we only know so much about you. We live in mystery, O oh Lord, and yet we rejoice in it as well. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for being a God that is above us and that, O oh Lord, you have deemed it so that we would learn about you and come to know you and to love you as this personal God who's entered into our life. For the worship service ahead, O oh Lord, may you use all the means of this grace up above, uh, upstairs that uh, you would bring it close, right into our hearts, to glorify your name and to rejoice in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.